Let us turn to Leviticus 27. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, if anyone makes a special vow to dedicate a person to the Lord by giving the equivalent value, set the value of a male between the age of 20 and 60 at 50 shekels of silver. According to the sanctuary shekel for a female, set her value at 30 shekels. For a person between the age of 5 and 20, set the value of male at 20 shekels and of a female at 10 shekels. For a person between one month and five years, set the value of a male at five shekels of silver and that of a female at three shekels of silver. For a person 60 years old or, or more, set the value of male at 15 shekels and of female at 10 shekels. If anyone making the vow is too poor to pay the specified amount, the person being dedicated is to be presented to the priest, who will set the value according to what the one making the vow can afford. If what they vowed is an animal that is acceptable as an offering to the Lord, such an animal given to the Lord becomes holy. They must not exchange it or substitute a good one for a bad one or a bad one for a good one. If they should substitute one animal for another, both it and the substitute become holy. If what they vowed is a ceremonial unclean animal, one that is not acceptable as an offering to the Lord, the animal must be presented to the priest, who will judge its quality as good or bad. Whatever value, of, whatever value the priest then sets, that is what it will be. If the owner wishes to redeem the animal, a fifth must be added to its value. If anyone dedicates their house as something holy to the Lord, the priest will judge its quality as good or bad, whatever value the priest then sets so it will remain. If the one who dedicates their house wishes to redeem it, they must add a fifth to its value, and their house will again become theirs. If anyone dedicates to the Lord part of their family land, its value is to set according to the amount of seed requiring for it, 50 shekels of silver to a harbour of barley seed. If they dedicate a field during the year of Jubilee, the value that has been set remains. But if they dedicate a field that after the Jubilee, the priests will determine the value according to the number of years that remain until the next year of Jubilee, and its, and its set value will be reduced. If the one who dedicates the field wishes to redeem it, they must add a fifth to its value and the field will again become theirs. If, however, they do not redeem the field or if they sold it to someone else, it can never be redeemed. When the field is released in Jubilee, it will become holy, like a field devoted to the Lord. It will become priestly property. If anyone dedicates to the Lord a field that are bought, which is not part of their family land, the priest will determine its value up to the year of the Jubilee, and the owner must pay its value on that day as something holy to the Lord. In the year of Jubilee, the field will revert to the person from whom it was bought, the one whose land it was. Every value is to be set according to the sanctuary shekel. 20 garas to the shekels. No one However, 
may dedicate the firstborn of an animal, since the firstborn already belongs to the Lord. Whether an ox or a sheep, it is the Lord's. If it, if it is one of the unclean animals, it may be brought back at its set value, adding a fifth of the value to it. If it's not redeemed, it is to be sold at its set value. But nothing that a person owns and devotes to the Lord, whether a human being or an animal or a family man, may be sold or redeemed, everything so devoted to its most holy career. No person devoted to destruction may be ransomed, they are to be put to death. A type of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belong to the Lord. It is the Lord, it is the holy to the Lord. Whoever would redeem any of their type must add to, must add a fifth of the value to it. Every type of the herd and frog, every tenth animal that passed under the shepherd's rod will be holy to the Lord. No one may pick out the good from the bad or make any substitution. If anyone does make a substitution, both the animals and its substitute become holy and cannot be redeemed. These are the commands of the Lord gave Moses at Mount Sinai for the Israelites. So we've finally made it to the end of Leviticus. Um, not many Christians managed to read the book the whole way through, um, at least not without skimming a ton of it. And not many churches have managed to preach through it either. So I hope after all of that, um, you found it actually a really enjoyable book and have seen aspects of God's character that you wouldn't really see or find elsewhere. And I hope that you've even started to love God's law, um, even though. We're in the new covenant and we don't follow God's old covenant laws. Seeing those old covenant laws are actually full of grace and generosity. I hope that helps you to love his new covenant laws and um, to see that throughout the ages, God actually hasn't changed. He's always been righteous. He's always been merciful and his laws have always given life and they always will. Uh, So let me pray before we uh, start this final chapter of Leviticus. Father, thank you for um, your gracious law. Thank you that you've uh, given us the time to read through it and the spirit to help us understand what you mean through it. Uh, We ask, Lord, that you will write your laws into our hearts so that we might be obedient people um, that love you, that understand uh, your grace and your holiness and that are thankful for all that you've done for us. We pray that um, as we finish off the book of Leviticus, that you might um, impress it on our hearts in a lasting way so that we'll remember um, what we've been taught here through your word and that it might change our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So last chapter. So this last chapter opens with God addressing the making of vows or promises to do something that's all about is so it's different than the other sacrifices we've seen in leviticus where if you do x then you need to offer y sacrifice or even the voluntary offerings where you're just expressing uh, your joy or you're just celebrating so these vows are a bit different to all of that the word that the niv translates as special as in special vows 
is trying to get this idea of different or of standing out or of being extraordinary. Judging by the content of the rest of the chapter, the special vows seem to be vows with an extraordinary price. They're vows of human or animal life or of houses and of land. So it's probably the type of vow that you would make when you're desperate. Like, God, if you get me out of this situation, if you give me this promotion, if I meet the boy or girl of my dreams, then I will never lie again. I will go to church every Sunday. I will give a month's worth of savings to the church, whatever it is. What's really interesting to me is that I kind of assumed this type of vow was a bad thing. It feels a bit bargaining, like you're trying to twist God's arm into doing what you want him to do. But it seems like Leviticus assumes it's normal. It's got a whole chapter on how to fulfill vows like this. It kind of assumes that's just part of our relationship with God. When you're desperate, what else do you do when you follow God? You pray to him and you ask him for help, right? If you're really desperate, it seems like you make a vow. And you get a lot of examples of this, um, of people doing it throughout the rest of the Bible as well. So one of the most uh, famous examples is Hannah in 1 Samuel. So she longed for a child and vowed that if God gave her a son, she would devote his life to God. So there's this kind of undercurrent of desperation in this chapter um, that we've all probably felt before. We've all been in a, in a desperate situation, and we've all probably expressed it as a vow before as well. God, if you heal my mum from cancer, I'll give you all that I have. But why are we talking about vows to end Leviticus? It kind of feels like an anticlimax. <clears throat> Last week seemed like it would be the perfect ending to Leviticus. After all the laws and the rituals, God offers the Israelites two ways to live. The first choice is to follow his commands and he'll bless them with all the provisions they could ever want that have so much uh, food and harvest that they'll be harvesting their crops in right up until it's time to plant for the next season. And the land would be safe and they would have peace and they could sleep without fear. That's if they chose to obey. The other choice is to disobey, to refuse to listen, to be hostile towards God. And if they do that, then their cities would be destroyed, diseases would sap their strength, and they would run away in terror even though no one was chasing them. So it's a really powerful ending to the book that's trying to pave the way for the Israelites to come back into the presence of God. But then we get this chapter, and it feels a bit mundane. It's a bit of a boring way to end the book, just some rules about how to fulfill, fulfill vows. The first thing you might think when you read the passage is that it's overly complicated. Look at how many situations it covers. Verses 1 to 8 cover the vowing of four categories of people split by male and female. Verses 9 to 13 covers what to do with animals if they're clean or unclean. And then within those categories, what to do if they're good or bad. And verses 14 to 25 covers giving houses and land and then what to do if um, it's near to the year of Jubilee 
or if it's a property that you purchase but it isn't part of your ancestral possession, what do you do in that situation? It's getting pretty complex. Then verse 26 to the end of the chapter uh, covers what you can't give in fulfillment of a vow, which included the firstborn of any animal because it already belonged to God or things that are devoted to destruction, meaning that they're uh, irrevocably given to God. And then also tithes, which um, already belong to God as well. So it kind of covers every possible variable with fulfilling a vow. There's peoples, there's animals, there's property, um, which is pretty much everything of worth that you have, everything of major worth, and how to handle any of those variables. But why? If you make a vow, you just fulfill it, right? If you promise the bull, if God gave you rain this season and then God gives you rain, then you just give the bull. It seems to be pretty simple. But maybe another undercurrent of this passage is the idea that people will try to maximize their gain from God but minimize their giving to God. I think because people will just naturally try to escape fulfilling their vow. If you make an extraordinary promise, if you make a special vow in a time of desperation, you might overpromise. You might offer more than you would in your right mind or in a different situation. So when it comes to fulfilling the vow, you're a bit hesitant. And it's kind of understandable when you look at the cost of these vows. It's hard to know exactly, but most guesses are that a shekel of silver was about one month's worth of labor. So the price of a 20 to 60-year-old male was over four years' worth of work. I feel that produced a good harvest. might have been worth even more than that. So these aren't things that you'd give up easily. You worked hard, you saved up, but you also made a vow. So what do you do? You try to get out of it, I think. You try and give the minimum. So these laws were to encourage and ensure that the promises are honestly fulfilled. So the passage itself isn't too hard to understand and to get your head around. Vows made in desperation still need to be genuinely fulfilled. But why is this passage, which is a bit of an anticlimax, used as the finale of this book? To figure that out, it'll be helpful to return right back to the start of our journey through Leviticus. You might have forgotten now, but we actually started at the end of the book of Exodus, where we saw that Moses couldn't enter into the tabernacle because God was holy, but his people were sinful. He's perfectly holy, so anything unholy that comes near to him is in danger of destruction. So that helped us to understand that Leviticus was a book about approaching God. Then in the first seven chapters of Leviticus, we saw instruction on all sorts of sacrifices, which were describing how to interact with God in daily life, how to celebrate, how to remember, how to repent and atone. And then in chapters 8 to 10, we saw the ordination of the priests that made all those sacrifices possible the ones, the priests, would be the ones that would mediate between us and God. But immediately after the ordination of the priests, we saw their failure because they couldn't carry out the task of separating clean and unclean. And so some of the priests were destroyed. 
So in chapters 11 to 15, we then see all sorts of instructions about cleanliness and uncleanliness following the priest's failure to determine the difference. We saw what types of food or actions or defiling things were considered spiritually unclean, what would make the Israelites unclean. And we were kind of overwhelmed by the impossibility of remaining clean. But then we get to chapter 16, the Day of Atonement, the center point of the book. There is no way the people of Israel could follow all the laws. Even with the grace given in the sacrifices uh, to, to enable them to repent and atone, there would always be sin and uncleanliness. But God gives the Day of Atonement in chapter 16. On that day, there would be a sacrifice that could cover everything. It could cover all the sins. And it did. So from chapters 17 to 24, after being washed clean, we start to think about what it means to be holy, holy in our sexual and spiritual ethics, holy in our practices, holy with our time, holy with our words, holy with the land, holiness in everything. Then chapter 26, last week, we wrapped up the book with a choice of how to live. If we do the things in this book, we'll be blessed. If we don't do the things in the book, we'll be cursed. If we do the things in the book, we'll be able to approach and stand in the presence of God. If we don't do the things in the book, we can't come near him. So that's a pretty neatly wrapped story at the end of last week. You've got the way to go into God's presence, the requirements of living with God, and then the choice to obey or disobey. But then you have this extra chapter at the end. It sticks out a bit. It's a chapter about fulfilling special vows. How is this the end to a book about approaching God? Why this extra chapter? I think this extra chapter is here because the ending that we had last week would be striking for the Israelites that wandered the desert and wrestled with the laws of Leviticus and its commands and obeying them. But it's not so striking for the generations that come after. What about the generations that came after that first generation that disobeyed? Because we know they disobeyed in the end. What about the generations that came after the people uh, who were in the land disobeyed and were exiled because they disobeyed as well? What about the generations that came after the exiles returned to the land and still continued to disobey? For all those generations and the generations that followed, the choice to obey or disobey, at least on a national scale, was inevitably to disobey. They just couldn't do anything else. They could only disobey, it seems like. So we have this chapter then, after the choice to obey or disobey. It's a chapter that assumes we'll call to God in our desperation. And it's a chapter that also assumes that we'll try and squirm out of our promises that we make to God. But maybe most importantly, and very hopefully, it's a chapter that assumes that God is near. This chapter is about fulfilling special, extraordinary vows that are made in desperation. Um, as is in the Old Testament often, and as we've seen a few times in the Leviticus, what's left unsaid can be the most important thing. 
if you now must fulfill a vow that you made in desperation, that must mean that God answered that prayer that you made in desperation. He sent those rains. He provided for your family. He healed your sick child. The most important assumption of this passage is actually that not that we're desperate or we'll try and squirm out of our promises, but that God is near and he's listening and he's saving. Not just saving on a big scale like the Exodus, because one really interesting part about this chapter is that the phrase, I am the Lord, is missing. You might have noticed in the past few chapters especially, the main reason for giving a lot of the commands and instructions was because I am the Lord. That phrase was a reminder that God was the God of the Exodus, that he redeemed them from Egypt and and brought them out and saved them and made them his own people. And so because he is the Lord now, their response was to be holiness or keeping the Sabbath or leaving food for the foreigner. The phrase, I'm the Lord, appeared over 60 times in the last few chapters. I'm not sure I actually counted that correctly because there were so many, but it appeared a whole bunch of times in the last few chapters. But in this chapter, it's totally dropped. It's not mentioned once. So God isn't saying to us here, fulfill your vows because I saved you in the Exodus, even though that would be a valid reason. But he's saying, fulfill your vows because I saved you again. When you called out in your desperation, when you were fearful, when you were overwhelmed with troubles, I listened and I cared and I acted. But even within this hopeful reminder to fulfill our vows, you can see God's generosity towards us. In verse 8, a person who made a vow in desperation seems to have maybe vowed something that was greater than he could actually give. Instead of taking everything that he had, God accepts what he's able to give and he counts it as whole. And all throughout the passage, there are chances at redemption to buy back what was rashly offered, what was rashly vowed. So it's a picture of God being near to us and understanding human weakness. He understands that we get into desperate situations and he understands that we promise more than we could ever give. Yet he still answers our prayers and he still cares for our desperation. So maybe this is the perfect way to end the book about approaching God. The book gives us a way to approach God, but we see generation after generation of failure. It's just too difficult. But thankfully, the book doesn't end there. It ends with more salvation. It ends with another answer to another desperate prayer. It assumes that God is near and is listening to his people, but it's his people that run away. It ends with hope that despite failure, God will not abandon us. Somehow he'll save us. It doesn't talk about him saving again because that's the assumption. He just will save again. It talks about and encourages the Israelites to respond thankfully whether it's fulfilling their vows that they made to him in their desperation or expressing thanks in other ways. 
in the new covenant, we get to see the fulfillment of the hope that God would save. Even though his people fail over and over again, we see Jesus die and rise to wash us clean. We experience the presence of the Holy Spirit. And just like in the old covenant, we see God answer our prayers. We see him listen to us in our desperation. And so this book reminds us that God is near. Even now, new covenant times, we have this reminder, God is near. Even though we, his people, might disobey over and over again, the promise of salvation is even stronger still for us. And so the call to thankfulness and to fulfilling vows is stronger still with us. We might make vows with no intention of fulfilling them, but this passage asks us to think back on God's faithfulness and generosity. If you've made a vow and God's fulfilled his portion of the vow, this passage asks us to fulfill our portion as well, as best as we can, to express thanks in whatever way we can. This passage in the book encourages us to keep crying out to God, maybe even to make vows in our desperation, because God is near and he's listening. The final chapter, this final chapter tells us that the hope of Leviticus, which was that we could approach and even stand in the presence of God, has been fulfilled. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the book of Leviticus. Um, We thank you that you've made a way for us to approach you and to be in your presence. And we thank you that even in our disobedience, you still listen to our prayers and you still care for us in our desperation. We ask, Lord, that we might respond rightly, that we might fulfill vows that we've made to you, that we might express thankfulness for all the ways that you've uh, answered our prayers and saved us. And we thank you um, that we could spend the time to dig through this book, uh, which unusually reminds us in different ways of uh, the new covenant and what Jesus has done for us. We pray that you would write these words on our hearts and help us to um, really understand and to treasure these thoughts that you've uh, given to us over the past few weeks. Amen. All right. Q&A time. Get the Padlet onto the screen. Haven't heard it before. All right. We've got a couple of comments. Thanks for bringing us to the end of Leviticus, John. Good job. Hey, pleasure. That was a big... I never thought I'd preach through Leviticus and you guys probably never thought you'd listen through Leviticus. <laughs> you did not. I did not. <laughs> All right, let's head into the questions. First one, what about Matthew 5, 33 to 37 and the command to not make oaths? Is it the same as what Leviticus 27 is saying? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, I've just looked that up here. It says 33 to 37. Um, I'll just read the first couple of verses because I think that's the main part. Um, Again, you have heard it said that... uh, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool. 
or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. Um, that's a really good question. I think uh, that that's talking about a slightly different thing. So I, I'd have to look up the words, um, the word oath to, to be sure. But just from reading it, it seems like the oath is like a promise of honesty. So that might be more like um, swearing on God's name. So it's like, don't falsely swear on God's name. It tells us somewhere in Leviticus, I've forgotten where. Um, so I think the oath is more like, I, I promise on my head or I promise on the name of God or something that I'm telling the truth. Um, so I think that that's what the oath is. And then the vow is more like, God, uh, please get me out of this situation and I will donate my first child to the church, something like that. So I think that's that's more the vow. So it's like a, a prayer in desperation kind of linked with a promised response. So that's the vow. And then the oath is like, I promise I'm telling the truth. So it's Jesus mm. saying, don't like swear by God's name or even your own head because you have no control either over any of those things. Um, yeah, so I think maybe a slightly different situation, but really good um, connection that you've made. Um, but I, I think it's talking about slightly different things. Very good. Very good. Thanks, John. Um, next question. Can you explain verse 29 in the passage a bit more? It, uh, it seems a bit harsh, this person is saying. So verse 29 is, no person devoted to destruction may be ransomed. They are to be put to death. Um, so I guess that seems harsh in uh, comparison to the other things that could be redeemed. Um, but uh, so that particular verse comes in the section where it's talking about the things that you can't use to pay back your oaths. And basically the things that you can't pay back, use to pay back your oaths are the things that already belong to God. So, uh, so the Israelites were meant to give their firstborn of an animal, like their firstborn cow to God. So this section saying that that cow already belongs to God. So if you're going to fulfill an oath of giving a cow to God, you can't give the firstborn cow because you're already going to give it. So you can't use that to pay it off. Um, so similar, I think that's why this thing can't be ransomed or redeemed um, because this person already belongs to God. The idea of devoted is interesting though. Um, so it's uh, this idea of like a, maybe like an, an irrevocable giving to God. So it's like, um, I guess it matches with the not able to be redeemed sort of thing. So once you give, once you devote something, or like the Hebrew word is harem, once you harem this thing, it's God's forever. And mostly the way that things are devoted or haremed um, is by destruction. So like say the, the city of Jericho in Joshua um, that was totally destroyed and the people in it were destroyed and all the items were destroyed. The only thing that um, wasn't destroyed was Rahab uh, because it was kind of a giving over to God. And mostly it's in a negative connotation where a thing is haremed because, or a thing is harem because 
um, it's kind of the only way to redeem its evilness. So it's like something that's so evil or detestable that the only way this thing will ever be acceptable to God is that if, if it's destroyed. So this person, so not, not always, but like mostly. So this person devoted to destruction or this harem person um, is a person that has maybe done something so detestable, so evil that the only thing that can be done with him is to be destroyed and that will satisfy God. So you can't use this person whose only uh, end point is destruction to fulfill a vow that you made. So I think that's what it's saying. And that's why, so it is pretty harsh, but it's like not many people are, well, actually there's a lot of instances of people devoted to destruction, but it's not a thing that's done lightly. It's not like every second thing is devoted to destruction. That's a good clarification. Um, Comment. Someone has requested numbers. (laughs) Man, that person is a sucker for punishment. Nah, James. <laughs> <laughs> Can't tell if that's um, a serious request. I don't know, man. I don't know. <laughs> if, if so, then that's a brave person. <laughs> There's a few. So we'll do we'll do a New Testament one next year. So I'm I'm still deciding what. Um, maybe a gospel because it's been a while, or maybe Hebrews or something. But then we are going back to the Old Testament, so we just kind of alternate. And we might, uh, I guess, I'll, I'll throw numbers out there as an option. The other options were like. Ecclesiastes or Job or Song of Songs, like something from Wisdom Lit that we don't really touch. Um, yeah. Cool. Thanks, thanks to that person for that suggestion. <laughs> um, all right. One more question. Can the lessons of Leviticus 27 apply to marriage vows? Oh, um, I might need a bit more clarification on that if the if the person can throw a few more thoughts in um what do you mean by that and things like that you could add that in yeah like so let me I'll, I'll i'll kind of like answer what i think they might mean so i guess leviticus 27 is about fulfilling vows to god and um being uh, what's the word like faithful to those vows as best as you can because like there's a lot of exceptions in there that kind of allow for people who maybe overpromised or just aren't able to deliver on it to um, to still fulfill it in in the kind of um, intentional sense like that they haven't actually done it but they've they're considered to have done it. Um, and I'm guessing that kind of idea does apply a bit to the marriage vows like vows made to made before god during a wedding ceremony yeah um so yeah i I think i think so like i think there's the expectation that when you make a because you are making a vow before god i hadn't thought about this actually so really good pick up um yeah so you're making that vow before god and you're making these promises and the expectation is that if you make a vow like this you fulfill it i think in our maybe less so as we grow up but definitely when we're younger we make if you're a christian when you're younger anyway you kind of make promises to god that you really have no intention of keeping you just want to be like out of this situation or you want to get something and you make these vows and you never keep them but i think as an adult um when you're kind of a bit more mature and have more expectations on you the expectation is that you keep vows so if you make a vow to god now for you know to 
I don't know, like give you a million dollars and you'll, I don't know, like turn up to church every Sunday. I, I don't know, whatever value you'd make. But if you get those million dollars, the expectation is that you fulfill the vow because you've made it. Um, and same with wedding vows. And wedding vows are really hard. Um, there's actually a lot of, <laughs> like, I think people, and probably me as well, don't think about how much you're actually promising in wedding vows. Um, and the expectation then is really high for you to fulfill them. Um, but within God's grace, um, with his covenant to his people, there's the understanding that, like, we kind of probably can't fulfill it perfectly. But like the poor person in verse 8, if, like, if we're doing, if we're fulfilling the vows to the best of our ability, I think that does count um, as a fulfillment of those vows. So, yeah, it does. I think it does apply to marriage vows and in a really interesting way. Um, it reinforces the, the um, promise of, the, of those marriage vows because, like, you really do have to fulfill them. And it's not easy sometimes, um, but it, there's a lot of grace in that, in that we're fallen and we're imperfect and that we can't, we probably can't really live up to the literal letter of the law um, of our vows. So there's grace for that as well. Very good question. Good one. Um, I don't think there is anything else. No, it doesn't look like it. Um, thanks for all your questions.